I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 1. We're going to begin reading at verse 11 and read to verse 14 of chapter 2. It's also going to comprise our text. We're going to consider all that Paul records in these verses about his conversion, about his ministry, about his relationship with the other apostles. It all contributes to the argument that he's making, to the defense of the gospel that he's making uh, in the Galatian, to the Galatian churches. So Galatians 1, beginning at verse 11, that's page 1810, 1810 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of God. I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. For you've heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how I intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many Jews of my own age and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from birth and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his Son in me, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did, not go, I did not consult any man, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went immediately into Arabia and later returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that, I'm not, that what I'm writing you is no lie. Later I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report. The man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they praised God because of me. Fourteen years later, I went up again to Jerusalem. This time with Barnabas, I took Titus along also. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. But I did this privately to those who seemed to be leaders for fear that I was running or had run my race in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, was compelled to be circumcised even though he was a Greek. This matter arose because some false brothers had infiltrated our ranks to spy on the freedom we have in Christ Jesus and to make us slaves. We did not give in to them for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might remain with you. As for those who seemed to be important, whatever they were makes no difference to me. God does not judge by external appearance. These men added nothing to my message. On the contrary, they saw that I had been entrusted with the task of preaching the gospel to the Gentiles, just as Peter had been to the Jews. For God, who was at work in the ministry of Peter as an apostle to the Jews, was also at work in my ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. James, Peter, and John, those reputed to be pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the grace given to me. They agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the Jews. All they asked was that I should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles, because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, 
Yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? That's for the reading of God's holy word. We're going to consider all of those verses, everything we just read. It is the tale of Paul and of his conversion and of how it is that he became to be the apostle Paul. And we'll consider these things together. The overarching theme of these verses is the very opening. Maybe that might serve just to focus our attention, the verses 11 and 12, where he says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preached is not something that man made up. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters in the Lord, when it comes to understanding passages like these, we are at something of a disadvantage in our current circumstance in in that we live so very far from the days of Paul. We don't know exactly what it was that Paul was dealing with. We don't know exactly what the Judaizers, what the circumcision group, what those heretics that were troubling the Galatian church, what they were exactly saying. What we can do, of course, is try to recreate their argument from what Paul says in response to them. We assume that, that Paul is attacking at every point some part, some plank of their argument. And so if he's attacking a plank, we can begin to sort of reconstruct that plank a little bit by what Paul says. And, and we need to do that in this circumstance in Galatians 1 verse 11 all the way to chapter 2 verse 14 because Paul here can come off um, maybe as very bold. There's a number of points along the way where, where it almost seems Paul would be arrogant where we would say, wait a second, Paul, is that really appropriate to say? where he calls the leaders of the Jews, or rather the leaders of the church, uh, men of some importance, but they seem to be important, he says. Whatever they are doesn't really matter to me because God doesn't judge by the external appearance. And that seems to be a little denigrating to the apostles. That sounds at first to our ears as though Paul were, were saying something inappropriate to James and J- Peter and John and the rest. And indeed, as you read this and you hear Paul defending his ministry, defending his calling, defending his place within the church, you begin to think, wait a second, Paul, that's a little too heavy, that's a little too bold, that's a little too arrogant. And maybe it would be for any of us. We are not apostles, we are not the apostle Paul. And maybe it would be in the context of our situation of life, in our, in our ecclesiastical circumstance, in our cultural circumstance. But Paul is defending here the gospel. Paul is not defending himself. He's defending the gospel against an attack that we also face today. And Paul shows us the way to defend ourselves against it. Because if we read Paul carefully, if we especially take those opening words, then we understand that his opponents were saying about Paul that his message, it wasn't the pure gospel. Paul's message was a man-made thing. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that the gospel I preach is not something that man made up. The the Judaizers, the heretics that were troubling the Galatian churches, evidently were saying that about Paul. They were saying, you don't listen to his preaching. Because his preaching, well, that's not the real truth. That's not the gospel. That's not the the biblical, the word-based truth. Paul's shaping it. Paul's altering it. Paul's changing it. Now, we might not necessarily have that. We do have that even today on some level. 
There are people that when they come to the Apostle Paul and his teaching on certain matters, on women in ecclesiastical office, on same-sex attraction and the rest, those are the more particularly current and challenging questions. They say, well, Paul, Paul was just speaking in his cultural context, you see. Paul was not speaking the truth. Paul wasn't speaking gospel truth. No, those are words that were unique to his time and we don't really need to listen to them anymore. Which is to say, we face, in that sense, the same problem the Galatian churches faced then. The word of God, the word of the Apostle Paul, is derided, it's diminished, it's, it's challenged in such a way that our confidence in its truth is greatly shaken. We begin to wonder, indeed, about the word of God in the New Testament language, and we begin to wonder, is this generally what we need to believe? And slowly but surely, our opponents undermine our confidence in Jesus Christ. Remember, how do we know Jesus Christ? How do we know that he's the Son of God? How do we know that he died, that he rose again, that he is our Savior, that our lives are forgiven, that we have eternity in him? How do we know that we of all men are blessed in this world because we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ? How do we know? We only know because this book tells us that. Because God has sent us preachers to preach from this book. Because God sent apostles like the Apostle Paul whose words are recorded in this book. But we know only because God has told us. We haven't seen Jesus. We didn't live in Jesus' day. And the world attacks and constantly undermines this very book, this very word from God, so that we won't have any confidence in the Lord and in salvation in Jesus Christ. We need to see that that's a very serious threat that we face. Maybe we don't feel the pressure of it as mature and established Christians, but think of our children, think of our grandchildren, think of our church community, think of our neighbors and our co-workers. If you're going to witness to them, if you're going to speak to them the word of hope, they're going to have to have confidence in the word of God. And how can you give them confidence in the word of God? That's the challenge we face. That's the challenge the Galatian churches faced when the false teachers were calling into question Paul's message of salvation by grace alone through faith alone. And the verses of our text are Paul's powerful response to that challenge, a response that we need to learn to imitate and to emulate. A response that begins, notice, with Paul's telling his conversion story. Paul says, look, this is who I was. I was an enemy of the gospel. I was advancing in Judaism beyond anybody. I was very, very committed to not being Christian. And this is, this is news that isn't new to the Galatian churches. They would have known Paul's conversion story. They would have known his witness and his testimony of God's grace. You can hardly imagine that when Paul planted churches, when he brought the gospel into Gentile communities, that he didn't tell them about his own personal experience of God's grace. We need to learn to be able to do that, by the way. We need to be able to speak personally and effectively of our own experience of God's grace. We sometimes have trouble with that in our particular cultural context, our particular Dutch Reformed context. We don't like to speak out about our faith. We don't like to speak out about personal things in that way. But we need to be able to. We need to learn that gift and that skill. We need to be able to say, listen to what God has done for me. Not, not because it exalts us, but precisely because it exalts God. I mean, think of what Paul's saying here. He's not boasting in the fact that he was such an enemy of God. 
He's not saying this because he wants everyone to know how awesome he was as a Pharisee. He wants everyone to stand amazed that God should convert him. That God should accomplish so great a grace in his life. He was arrested on the road to Damascus by a God who was committed to his redemption from all eternity. That's such a powerful witness and word. There are so many of those in these many, many verses. We're not going to be able to touch on them all. But at least notice that. But when God, who had set me apart from, his, from birth or from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me. Paul says, I was loved by God long before I had known this God. And he called me, he stopped me on my track so that I might come to preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. He was shown in person, you understand. Paul uniquely was shown in person the truth of the gospel. How did Paul know that the gospel was true? Because the word said it was, yes, to some degree. But even more powerfully, and this is what made him an apostle, he saw Jesus. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He saw the living Savior. And he could say with personal conviction, he lives. The gospel is true. The message is right. For Jesus Christ has been risen That's how powerful this conversion experience was. And indeed, it's not so much the conversion experience that's the issue, but it is he who converted him. Paul says, do you not see what God has done? God has taken me, this wicked, wicked man, and made me exactly what I didn't want to be. I wouldn't have become a preacher of the gospel if you had asked, if you'd offered me a million dollars. I would never have become the man that I am. The only explanation you can offer is the power of the living God. The living God who has given me a word to speak. That's why he goes on to say that he didn't learn any of this from the apostles. He didn't need to. He wasn't taught, schooled in the, in the seminary of the apostles who had followed Jesus Christ. Others needed to be, to be sure. Others needed to learn from Paul and Peter, James and John and all the rest, but not Paul. He didn't need to go to the apostles to learn that the gospel was true, that the word of God was true. He had experienced it personally and powerfully in the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. He had been confronted with it in an undeniable way. And so he went off to Arabia and then to Damascus. He didn't need to go gain the permission of the apostles. He didn't need to be told by men what to preach. Because he knew the truth. Do you see how Paul's words begin to to resist the lies of the hypocrites? The notion of Paul's peddling some cleverly devised myth runs into significant challenge when you realize he's the man who saw Jesus. To suggest that Paul was somehow teaching what he had been taught by others runs into significant challenge. He hadn't met with others. The notion that Paul could be teaching an amended or altered ministry and word of grace would be a complete contradiction of his own experience. You see, therein lies the the power of Paul's words here. 
Paul's not, not preaching a gospel that, that he experienced on some mystical journey somewhere or that others had to convince him about. They had to spend months and months beating it into his head so that he could get it straight. All he needed was to see the resurrected Messiah. And then his life became a campaign in joy and in sorrow, in everything that he did, in every moment that he lived, in every place that he went, a constant proclamation of grace in Jesus Christ, having been saved by grace alone, through faith alone, Paul preached the gospel that had been revealed to him. And we need to have the confidence of Paul's experience. We need to have the confidence of his word Our confidence in the gospel only increases when we recognize what Paul experienced. It is his material that dominates the New Testament. Indeed, it is the apostles' material, isn't it, that dominates the New Testament. There is an apostolic connection to almost every book of the New Testament in as much as we're able to ascertain that. And Paul himself has 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. As the gospel went farther and farther afield into the world, into this very globe upon which we live, it is little wonder that the Gentile, the leading Gentile witness and apostle, Paul, should be the primary voice of the church. We devote ourselves, don't we, still to the teaching of the apostles. We don't listen to our own ideas. We don't listen to our own theories. Oh, we venerate, we value men like Luther, Calvin, and all the rest, but we don't say that they're the ones we follow and believe. We follow Paul. We follow John. We follow Jesus, the one who revealed himself to the apostles that they might communicate to us the truth of his word. We stand upon the foundation of their teaching. We stand upon the foundation of God's own revelation. We stand upon the foundation of what God has done. Do you see how Paul is pushing back against our opponents? Do you see how that begins to equip us also in our day to be able to say to the world, it is not a cleverly devised myth. It is not something we've made up. It's not something that I learned from my parents or from my preacher or from my grandparents, though that may have been the case. That may have been the vessel through whom God gave that word to you. But what word was given to you? It was the revelation of God in Jesus Christ to men first who saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. They are eyewitnesses. There are no eyewitnesses left anymore today, are there? So it would be a good idea to listen to the men who saw Jesus in the flesh and to hear what they have to say. For what they have to say is glorious. Isn't that what Paul goes on to point out? The emphasis in the verses 18 through 21 is that Paul did not interact with any of the apostles at the outset of his ministry. He went to Arabia, Damascus, and then only after three years to Jerusalem where he met Peter for only 15 days. And then he also happened to meet James, who's not an apostle, by the way, though he was the head of the Jerusalem church, Jesus' own brother. He goes to meet them, to be acquainted with them, not to learn from them, not to get their permission, but to meet them. He doesn't go to seminary. He doesn't get examined by a classes or a synod. He didn't get his confirmed he didn't get confirmed rather at his time of his ministry oh yes he went to study don't make don't misunderstand those three years in arabia were a time of reflection undoubtedly but from the very first the moment he gets converted paul starts preaching preaching immediately and powerfully now he's not in the 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 center of the 
church universe at this point. He's outside of Jerusalem. Remember the, the gospel, the church begins in Jerusalem and then it begins to, like ripples, move across the, the face of the earth. And at Paul's conversion time, the, the local, the location, the central location of the church was still Jerusalem, was still Judea, it was still the Jewish community. And so Paul's outside of that and he's preaching in Arabia, he's preaching in Damascus, he's preaching in all of these places. And what is the church here, the church in Judea, the Jewish community? What are those who, who are devoted to the things of God and of his word? What they hear is that the former prosecutor was now a preacher and they praised God for him. These Jewish Christians didn't stop and go, wait a second, Paul's preaching a different gospel. These Jewish Christians didn't say, wait a second, where does Paul get off in trying to convince people about something that isn't true? Remember, Paul hadn't yet been affected as the false teachers would allege, by others, by a man-made gospel. He had only received the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's all he had. And that was enough for him. He was preaching boldly and powerfully. And the Jewish churches didn't say, wait a second, Paul, you got it wrong. You better come back in and sit down at James's feet for a bit and Peter's feet. You need to take a course with Peter. You need a mentorship with, with Simeon or with, with Philip or with whomever. They praised God because of what they were hearing, because of what Paul was accomplishing, because of what the Lord was doing through his preaching. They were amazed that Paul could bring so powerful a word, a word of such hope and promise. Isn't that the right response? Isn't that the appropriate way for all of us when we hear the Lord's ministry advancing, when we see the way the Lord is working to stop and to praise God, to celebrate what He's accomplishing. And when we hear that that message of salvation, that message of life in Jesus Christ, in Christ alone, is being promoted, then we ought to celebrate God's goodness and grace in Jesus Christ. That's the right response, not what the false teachers were doing who were saying, Paul, who's Paul? Who's Paul? You shouldn't listen to Paul. Listen, Paul is this, this Johnny-come-lately. He's not part of the core group. He's not really somebody that you can trust. You shouldn't listen to his gospel, that gospel that says Jesus is enough. Don't listen to that. You need to add things. You need to do things. You need to, provo- you need to prove yourself worthy of God. It's good that you have faith, but you need to prove your worth. Paul's own experience puts paid to this lie. Who was Paul? Paul was a preacher of free grace. Paul was a, Paul was a, pro, a persecutor turned preacher who had powerfully experienced the transforming grace of God in Jesus Christ that he utterly undeserved. And he was freely and powerfully testifying and God's people were rejoicing. Because that's what happens when the gospel grips a life. That's what happens when the gospel transforms people. That's what the gospel needs to do to us as well. 
That gospel needs to transform us so that we celebrate not our own ideas, not our own selves, not our own plans and purposes, but celebrate what God's doing, what God's accomplishing, what God's fulfilling in this world. We need to see what the Lord is doing and we need to celebrate it in this life. You think about how little the Judean churches had to celebrate in their day. You think about the challenges they were facing and were about to face. Remember that in AD 70, the city of Jerusalem would be utterly devastated. That's not too many years off from this. The dark clouds were lowering. The challenges were coming. The Israelites knew it. The Jews knew it. And yet here's a church, a group of people celebrating In the midst of all of this impending doom, what are they celebrating? They're celebrating the amazing power of Jesus Christ to save sinners. They're celebrating the amazing grace of God to Paul and to all of those who hear his gospel. And isn't that a word for us today? Isn't that an encouraging word for us today? We live also in times of concern and of dark clouds and of issues that are being faced by the church. And when we watch the news and when we hear all of these things that are happening, all of these discouraging words, then yes, you know what? Our hearts can get heavy and our spirits can be diminished. We can get anxious and fearful. But what if we stopped for a minute and saw what God was doing? What if we stop for a moment and celebrate God's grace and goodness towards us in Jesus Christ? What if we, even in the context of our own fellowship, We're to seek the signs of God's faithfulness and grace that we may praise the God who has done these things for us. You see, when you have a a message of salvation that is you plus God or God plus you, God does His part, you have to do your part too. Then you've got to be focused in on your part. But if you've got a message of salvation like the Apostle Paul's, which is by grace alone through faith alone, then all you've got to do is watch what God's doing. And stand amazed at his grace in Jesus Christ. Our hearts are lifted up when we stop for a moment and lift our eyes heavenward. When we set our hearts at the Father's right hand. When we take time to worship. When we take time to do devotions. When we take time to hear the stories of grace and of mercy that are being accomplished. When we see how the Lord is adding to our own congregation. Those who who are coming to faith. When we see what the Lord's doing at River of Life. When we see what the Lord's doing in our own families and in our own homes, then we celebrate that grace of God, that mercy of God. And then we see the truth of what God has revealed in His Word being experienced by us all. A word that is going to be resisted, a a gospel that we know is going to be opposed. There came a time when Paul did meet the church leaders 14 years later, as chapter 2 tells us. There is a possibility, there's a strong possibility. It seems like this is what occurred in Acts 15 in terms of uh, the Jerusalem council. There was a question that was raised at that point with regard to Jew-Gentile relationships and the Jerusalem council resolved that question. You can read about that uh, in your home today. And there seems to be reason to think that that's what Paul's referring to here. But he tells the story in his own way, and he tells it for a particular purpose. He says, for example, that he went by revelation. I went in response to a revelation and set before them the gospel that I preach among the Gentiles. Notice that he didn't go because he had to. 
He didn't go because he was called. They didn't, you know, wag their finger at Paul and say, you better come and give an explanation for who you are. God sent him. A revelation of God compelled him to go to these leaders of the church and to sit with them for a moment and explain to them what he had been saying to all the world. Now notice that he did it privately. He went with them behind closed doors. He didn't do this in order to to please everybody, in order to satisfy everyone. He didn't do it to advance his own brand or his own good name. He quietly said to the leaders of the church, here's what I'm preaching, here's what I'm teaching. And the leaders of the Jews said, yes, that is exactly right. That is the gospel that we endorse. Now what was the reason why Paul had to do this? The answer comes to us that there were false teachers wanting to bind believers into slavery again. There were these false teachers that were insisting that salvation was not by grace alone through faith alone. That it was by grace plus works. That's the slavery. That is a slavery that we need to oppose and fight against all our lives. It is so tempting for us. It is so easy for us to fall into that mentality. It is so easy for us to think that somehow or another, it's up to us. We think that, don't we, when we face challenges of various kinds. When the troubles of life come into your, into your, into your existence, into your world, do you not think to yourself at times, God, what have I done? Now that question is a question born of works righteousness. That is to say, we are not convinced, are we, that we are forever right in the eyes of God, that we are so justified, that God looks at us as though we'd never sinned nor been a sinner, as though Jesus were as per or that we were as perfectly righteous as Jesus was for us. If God, if you believe that God sees you that way in Jesus Christ, if you genuinely know that God loves you deeply and powerfully and perfectly and eternally, do you ever imagine that your Heavenly Father will ever do anything to harm you? How could you? If you know the love of God, its depth, its breadth, its width, and its length, how could you ever doubt God's faithfulness to you? But we do. And why do we? We do it because we think somehow or another it's up to us. It's the echo of our works righteousness. It's the same thing that happens when we ask questions like, well, do I have to? And when it comes to Christian spirituality, do I have to go to church twice on Sunday? Do I have to show that person grace and mercy? Do I have to be a light to the world? Do I, if I don't, what will happen if I don't? That kind of thinking, that kind of assessing of the situation, that kind of balancing out the question is only possible if you adopt a works righteous perspective it's only possible if you say i've done enough to be saved do i need to do more to be saved i don't think i need to do more if i don't do that i'm not going to be more saved or more lost you see how works righteousness infuses even that thought that when it comes when we hear the 10 words of the law when we confront them in our daily living when the Lord calls you, as he's called you recently, to forgive, right? We studied forgive us our debts as we forgive. Oh, and you got to, man, you got to forgive somebody that it is no easy thing to forgive. And I understand that. You can go back and listen to that message. I understand that it's not easy. It is wounded. Our hearts, our souls can be wounded deeply. Don't misunderstand that. But the Lord still calls us to forgive. And when he does, we can say, wow, do I have to? And the answer is no. 
No. But if you don't, it's not going to be good. If you don't, it's, it's going to testify that you don't know the love of God in Jesus Christ. That you don't know you're saved by grace alone through faith alone. That your life is to be lived as a sacrifice to God. That you are to offer yourself in every part to the Lord. The false teachers of Paul's day wanted to bind unto spiritual slavery the, the listeners. And we are tempted to embrace those shackles ourselves. We need to see and we need to resist that temptation by the message of salvation by grace through faith. A message that has long been opposed by the world, by the devil, by our own flesh. But a message that is glorious and gracious and good. There is no greater joy, no greater comfort, no greater peace, no greater blessing that we can experience than to know that we are so loved by God in Jesus Christ, that we have nothing to fear, that there is truly no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The devil wants you off of that foundation. He wants you away from that hope. He doesn't want you resting in that mercy. That's why he pushes us. That's why he opposes us. That's why he opposed Paul. That's why he is opposing the Galatian churches. When the devil comes and calls into question the word of God, when he calls into question the gospel, when he calls into question your own commitment and your own confession, when he sows seeds of doubt in your heart and in your life, and we all experience those at one time or another when we struggle, what the devil's trying to do is to get you to turn away from the only hope and comfort that you'll ever have, the glorious good news of the gospel in Jesus Christ, the amazing grace. Because he knows that if he can get you to stop focusing on how much God loves you in Jesus Christ, he can get you to deny Jesus Christ. And so Paul stood fast, stood fast, and said, no, this is the gospel, salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And the church leaders affirmed it. In the final verses from 6 to 14, of our text, Paul finally affirms the witness of the church leaders. He, these, these men who, who he says seem to be important, that, that's probably language that he's, he's, he's taking from his, his opponents. That they are the really important ones. And Paul's not important. They're important. Don't listen to them. Listen to those Jews. Because, of course, they were all Jews, as was Paul. But Paul was speaking a message of grace, of, of free salvation by faith. Don't listen to this crazy, odd Paul. Listen to these established, long, uh, 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 long in the faith, these, these men of, of renown. And Paul's saying, well, they seem to be important, don't they? But they don't ma- that doesn't matter. God doesn't care about who you are. God doesn't care who I am. What God cares about is the glory of his name. And when they heard the message of salvation from Paul, then they gave him the right hand of fellowship. They acknowledged that his ministry and his message was true and faithful. They affirmed to all the world that what Paul was saying was what they were saying. And where there was deviation on that point, there was a call to repentance. Notice that Paul adds that, doesn't he, at the end, in the verses 11 through 14, that call to Peter. Peter was, was tempted uh, to, to agree with the Judaizers, with the circumcision group. So 
Peter's out there and he's ministering. He's eating with Gentiles, which was the thing Jews didn't normally do because you become unclean. But Peter, of course, you remember, had that great vision of unclean and clean and God had said, do not call unclean what I've called clean. And then he sent him to Cornelius' house to eat with him, to fellowship with him. Right? You'll remember that story. While Peter had been with all these Gentiles and he had been fellowshipping with them and he had been free from the old cultural requirements of the law. But now this circumcision group had come from Jerusalem and, and they'd gotten offended, you see. They'd gotten angry. How dare you, Peter? Who do you think you are? And then Peter, wanting to make them happy, which is the problem, isn't it? Now, there's nothing wrong with wanting to make people happy. We saw that, of course, last time. In fact, we ought to do everything we can to make people happy. But if they're wrong, making them happy is not the right thing to do. And if they deny the gospel, making them happy is demonic, and it is devilish, and it is deadly. These people came and said, Peter, you offend us by what you're doing. We don't think you should be doing that. That's not godly. And Peter said, well, to, to, to prevent you from being offended, I'll, I'll withdraw from these Gentile Christians. And Paul gave him what for? Publicly. Now Paul didn't do it privately. Peter had sinned publicly. So Paul upbraided him publicly. How, and he uses the word hypocrisy twice. This is hypocritical. This is not the gospel. This is not the truth. So that these Galatian churches who were taking issue with the fact that Paul was preaching a gospel of free grace could apply to Peter and say, Peter, is Paul right or wrong? And Peter would have said, Paul is absolutely right. I was wrong. I was wrong. When I thought that the laws of diet, that the laws of circumcision, that all of these Jewish regulations needed to be followed, I was wrong, says Peter. Not Paul. I was wrong. Paul was not someone who would let his personal advancement prevent him from being faithful to his Savior. He was willing to take on Peter, the great apostle, the one to whom Jesus had said to you, I give the keys of the kingdom. And what did Peter do? Peter acknowledged his mistake. Peter repented of it. Which is only to say that Paul had been fighting this fight for a very long time. Fighting the fight of keeping God's people focused on the grace of God and Jesus Christ and on nothing else. And we've been fighting that battle for a long time too in the history of the church. From the days of Paul to today, we discover that keeping our eyes focused on Jesus Christ, keeping our hearts passionate about the Lord, keeping our hearts amazed at what he's accomplished on our behalf is no easy thing. It is, more, it is far easier to get distracted, to get off the path, to get into the ditches on this side or on the other. We are going to have to fight this fight for the rest of our lives and until the Lord returns to keep our hearts, to keep our minds focused on what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. The enemies that we face know to attack the word, know to attack the messenger, know to attack the hope, the power, and the promise of Jesus Christ. They know that the only way they can win is if they get us off of the glorious grace of God in Jesus Christ. But we need to stand upon the foundation that has been laid, contending for the faith that was once for all entrusted to all the saints. We need to fight the way Paul fought, by directing their eyes to the resurrected Savior, 
by directing their eyes to the power of God at work among us, to directing their eyes to the confirmation of the gospel by those who are in authority over us, by pointing them to our defense of the faith against all, even those close to us who might deny it. How do we stand for the things of God? We stand by keeping our eyes focused on Jesus Christ and by celebrating what He's doing in all of our lives. Let's do that now in prayer. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that it is easy for us to get turned around. It is easy for us to get distracted. It is easy for us to get dispassionate. It's easy for us to get self reliant, contented. It's so easy for us, Lord, in our own spirituality to think, I'm good enough. I've got enough. I've done enough. Instead of stopping and saying, behold, what a Savior, what a glorious King. Lord, we pray that you would help us to keep our eyes focused on you, help us to stand in awe of you, and help us to offer our lives in gratitude to you. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.